Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. On today's episode, Josie is back with Robin and they are chatting to Professor Francesca Stavrokopoulou about her new book, God and Anatomy, which is out now. Before we get to that... Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. You can subscribe at patreon.com slash bookshambles to get lots of extra goodies. And we have got some big news coming up that Patreon supporters will find out about first. And I think it's quite important that you find out about it first, to be honest, in this particular instance. Plus, you get extended episodes of each and every episode. I can't remember if I just said that. Um at the start because I had to add the bit in about the important news. So I might have said it twice, but there you go. Robin's book, The Importance of Being Interested, is out soon. We've just announced a special London launch event on November 8th at King's Place with special guests. Tickets for that is 12 quid and on sale now. If you can't get down to London, Robin is on tour of lots of independent bookshops around the UK. Go to cosmicshambles.com slash 100 bookshops for all those dates. And also next week on the 4th of October, we're doing a free live stream event at 7.30pm British summertime for the launch of Robin's book with Robin and Tim Minchin. And if you can't join us live, don't worry, that will be next week's episode of Book Shambles. And one final thing we should mention is today we have opened the Cosmic Shambles bookshop. You can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshop and we will be selling signed copies, only signed copies, of books from all of our Shambles contributors and family. So that's Robin and Helen Chesky, Brian Cox, Chris Lintot, Ginny Smith, Susie Gage, Dean Burnett, you know all the people. So you can head there and get signed editions of all their latest books. And very soon as well, we'll be opening up a secondhand bookshop section of the online bookstore that is going to have all sorts of weird and wonderful things from Robin's Attic, from my shelves, from Josie's shelves and everything else. So go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshop to check that out. We'll also be popping up at all the various Cosmic Shambles events. That is all the admin for today. Here is Robin and Josie and Francesca. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. And I'm pleased to say that uh, Josie was away last week and she's back now. Hello! And I catch it, unfortunately you weren't expecting me to introduce you so early and you were enjoying a lovely yawn. Yes, I'm very tired. I'm, I'm a very uh, cat-like individual at this stage of the game. It was very bad, Puss, as well. It really did have, hang on a minute, all your friends are going to go to sleep. We need them to wake up. This is no good at all. But anyway, so today, tell you a couple of things quickly. Uh, if you can support us via Patreon, that is fantastic. Patreon.com slash bookshambles. It means we can make all these things. And uh, and then you also get kind of extra bits and pieces and longer versions. And sometimes also you can watch the recordings as well. Um, and uh, also I was going to mention, there's always a way of mentioning the fact I've got a book that uh, I think might even be out by the time this goes out uh, called The Importance of Being Interested. And the first chapter is all about 
God and science and how the two can sometimes sit together and sometimes get torn asunder. So that links to what we So anyway, buy my book, come and see my now 111 uh, bookshop tour. To, uh, doing, how are doing, you feeling about that, Robin? Uh, regretful. And it hasn't begun. <laughs> I, I, it was very much like so many. I would say it was a lockdown idea, but I think you would accept, Josie. It's a pretty typical idea of me to <laughs> not do yeah. that thing, which is imagine you had to do it tomorrow. I didn't do that, <laughs> did I? <coughs> Silly. Uh, <laughs> I have been in London doing some recordings and I made the mistake of going on the tube where no one bothers to wear a mask, even though it's the rules to wear a mask. And I've come back and I've got a tickly cough. And I'm like, if I have caught the coronavirus in this stage of pregnancy from people refusing to obey the rules, I will be so incandescent with fury that I will not be able to cope. And I will. I've been writing stiffly worded letters to everyone who is You on will the huff and you will puff, but you won't be able to blow the house down huh? due to the problems from the... It is, yeah, I, I've, I feel exactly the same. The tremendous frustration, I think, especially now because we are, we are able to go out to work and anyone who is self-employed and has had to fight as hard as they have over the last 18 months to then have people just going, I'm not going to bother wearing a mask. Do you know what? I'm sure that's fine if you've got a normal job and you get holiday pay and you get sickness pay and all that kind of thing and you haven't been chomping at the bit to return to the job that you love, which has been taken away for 18 months so you know just out of courtesy put a fucking mask on right there we are um anyway i i almost feel like i was like our guest then because she's very good at swearing too and uh, i'm just going to read you a little bit of uh, from from it's, it's today's guest is francesca stavrakopoulou who also we did uh, a tips for existence with uh, a while ago her book god and anatomy is beautifully vivid physical realization of god as described in in the bible in a way that is not in the hamlin children's bible that i had there's nothing uh, about but th- th- this is this is just from the prologue uh, in which Francesca says, why should I look past the clear image of God as a gigantic man with a heavy tread, weapons in his hands and breath as hot as sulphur, a God who took on a monstrous sea dragon in a physical fight and one, a God who walked into his heavenly garden and in the cemeteries of his people, a God who stripped a woman naked and offered her up to be gang raped and mutilated, a God who sat on a throne in a temple enjoying the aroma of scorched animal fat as he waited for his dinner, a God who not only had children but who willingly and willfully offered offered up his beloved son to be killed and sacrificed that gives you some sense of the adventure you were going to go on in this book which is beautifully illustrated wonderfully written and hello francesca hi thanks for having me god that sounded quite good didn't it that that bit you just read out it's a cracking opener i've got to say and it doesn't disappoint it's not it's not like one of those trailers where at the end of it you go she didn't talk about any of that <laughs> now I wanted to ask you first of all before we get uh, onto the book your your book was serialized on radio for uh, a couple of weeks back and I did notice from some of your social media uh, that um, some people were apparently not best pleased no which surprises me because obviously when you get asked to do book of the week a it's fantastic but b it means all these words that you've like spent years carefully crafting um, and not only really heavily abridged, but um, in my case, heavily censored. And I thought, Jesus, if they're pissed off about what I said on BBC Radio 4 at quarter to 10 in the morning, imagine how they're going to feel when they read that actual book. <laughs> um, yeah, people don't like it. Some people don't like it when you um, say, point out some of the uncomfortable realities of um, 
their religious texts um, because they're so jarring quite often with the sorts of cultural and social preferences that that we have and jarring in ways that you know they don't reflect the god that these people worship today I mean that's my big point in the book or well, one of them is that the god of the bible is not the same as the god of modern Christianity modern Judaism but because the bible is so fundamental and so foundational to those two religions it's got this very um high status within those religions anyway so if you start pointing out some of the bad stuff um people get a bit annoyed what was the thing that i mean i'm sure you had one day maybe a tuesday or maybe a wednesday we went, oh isn't that nice i've got a lot of tweets oh was <laughs> the one particular image one particular portion one particular description um i think the episode on god's genitals um which was hugely censored i mean in that episode i didn't go into any of the stuff that i go into in the book about god having sex with his child bride and uh offering her up then to be gang raped just as you alluded to in the introduction um you know that's not the kind of thing you put on radio four um well not in book of the week anyway so yeah i think it was people were annoyed about that and they were more annoyed as well by my tweets when i said oh you can listen to me on on book of the week this morning i said oh you know today is god's genitals and i just used the the aubergine emoji um and people got very annoyed at that and said i was very childish um which perhaps i am but i do think you have to approach these ancient ideas as awful as they are you need to approach them with a bit of fun as well um because otherwise god it's just so depressing and so upsetting um so yeah it was the aubergine emoji and uh god as rapist <laughs> um that, that that you know might well upset people but i was i was very polite in the actual radio episode i thought well also what you're really doing is discussing existing texts and evidence it's not you know if you were somebody who was coming out and being like I've made up this story and it's going to absolutely ruin you, you know. Then I would say, yeah, people have a real right to be um, offended by that. But what you're really doing is saying, if we look at these things and examine them, you'll find that they are very different to what you might have been taught. Like, that shouldn't be offensive to people because it's just dealing with the world of evidence. Yeah, and it's amazing how um, how many confessional readers of these texts don't actually know what's in those texts so you know a lot of people I get a lot of people emailing me saying I've read the bible from cover to cover and I couldn't find any you know references to x y and z or god's wife or whatever but that's because they're reading these texts in translation they're reading them in English translation or French translation or whatever and every translation is an interpretation I mean that's how it works um but when you're setting these texts in their ancient cultural contexts um, and looking at how these ancient authors are using language and imagery and drawing on much older mythic and religious tropes and setting that alongside other evidence of those cultures, like the visual evidence and archaeological evidence and that kind of thing, um, it, it's almost like you're it's it's almost like you're traveling back in time. And so you're kind of seeing these texts that we see today as bound together in these kind of leather or, or gilt covers um but actually you know they were so different in their ancient contexts and what i really want people to do is to understand that you know yeah that the bible is is a a lot more interesting than than non-religious people think it is and b that um 
the Bible's got this incredibly complex um, cultural world of its own and that it's really important, I think, to be connected to that and to look at it more carefully and closely, especially when you get people like Donald Trump, you know, being on, going on TV and blazoning the Bible in his hand and using it as a stick to beat people with. I mean, you mm. see, well, no, you know, let's let's look at this text seriously and carefully. And also it doesn't stop, it doesn't stop you from finding great beauty and great moral instruction and all kinds of other things from other parts of it. Like it doesn't stop the idea that, you know, following the teachings of Jesus might lead to a beautiful and better life. Like I, I don't think the two things are, are exclusive at all. And I, I think it's like anyone who takes a Bible seriously does have to be like, okay, well, this isn't a text that was written by an author. This is a, a massive historical project in itself of so many different political revisions and so much just even from the start, let alone like things way, way, way back as well. And then as you say, like translations on top of it, like, yeah, it's it's almost like people would much rather have a simple illusion than engage with it. Yeah. I mean, I can understand it because it's kind of people, you know, it, it because, as I said, it, it offers a very different kind of portrayal of God than modern Judaism and Christianity tend to promote and understand today. And I think it's quite hard. It's like, you know, if if someone, you know, takes the mickey out of your mum or your dad, you're going to feel upset and offended. It's because believers tend to have these very close relationships with their otherworldly imaginary friends um but they are very important relationships to them and so i can understand why people might feel personally attacked um and offended but equally at the same time you know this is a really complex literary character this god as well as being an ancient deity who was worshipped by lots of different sorts of people and a deity that changed and morphed a great deal over time um, and i think it's important that we recognize that this view of God as kind of being wholly good with an H and a W, you know, wholly good and, and sort of um, morally abstracted in some ways from the, the difficulties of what it is to be human and to be complicated and difficult and to do bad things. I mean, that's, that's not how ancient people saw their deities. Um, so you, there's an awful lot of good and a lot that's beautiful and touching and life affirming and instructive in biblical texts but there's all also an awful lot that's really difficult and ancient writers didn't have you know they sometimes had problems with that but but not the same kinds of problems that modern believers might have with that portrayal of a god today i suppose it depends doesn't it and for for many of us our beliefs are not something that we necessarily wanting to learn from but to justify us and yeah. i imagine a lot of the people that have kind of been you know crossed with with you that's that's part of it which is you 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 can skip over a lot of the things i mean you you also see it in science there's certain bits of science that i see being used on twitter where i think well, hang on a minute you you've cherry picked that particular thing for that justification what bible could people in in terms of getting some of the stories that that, that you place in here what what are the what is the most easily accessible bible that will give you this far grander kind of mythic image uh mm. than than the one that most of us would have had in our school bibles okay um the problem is is that most bibles even the ones that are more careful in trying to contextualize these texts culturally um they're still confessional um so i would say so something like the oxford annotated nrsv is quite good because that's got little crib notes at the bottom that will kind of give you little glosses on you know 
oh, this word here, it means a divine council, you know, the sons of God, oh, these were, you know, the junior members of God's divine council. Um, the Jewish Publication Society um, is also really good. It has little crib notes as well. Um, and, and actually, in particular, their New Testament is really good because we're so used to reading New Testament texts through Christian um, confessional lenses, but obviously the New Testament texts are Jewish. I mean, this was before, you know, this was before there was any clear distinction between who was Christian and who was Jewish. And, you know, Christian, the early Jesus movement was just a, a sect within early Judaism. And so these texts are very, very Jewish in that sense. Um, so they're quite good. But yeah, there's not really, I mean, it would be a great project to basically, I would love to do my own annotated Bible one day. I say I would love to. I like the idea of it, of it existing. I don't like the idea of actually having to do the work for it because it would just take donkey's years. But do yeah. the kind of Alan Moore technique, which is instead write a story about someone who creates an annotated Bible, which allows you to create something that exists within there, but you don't actually have to do all your footnotes. <laughs> I That's kind of what that. Jerusalem yes, deals with. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask a, a little bit about that. Uh, well, I mean, in a minute, we'll talk about God's feet. But first of all, uh, which is great, you're, you're, which is where you start. That's in, in, in your and, you, and the moment that you talk about God's feet, the, the two images that came into and I bet you've had this probably from a lot of people, certainly one of them. One of the images was Stanley Spencer's painting of The Last Supper. I don't know if you know it. Um, because Stanley Spencer, you know, did all these wonderful paintings of of kind of uh, Bible stories, but set in his hometown of Cookham. Oh yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. But he does this one where it's done from the perspective of the feet. So it's the Last Supper, but it's it's the 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 his camera as such, his painter's eye. So you see all of the feet sticking out from under the table. And I thought suddenly that that is the most foot-based biblical painting. And then of course obviously the other thing is the opening credits to Monty Python, you know, that foot coming down. Yeah, yeah. Is the first thing that as you discuss all you know the, these different ideas of 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 God's feet. So to give us a little bit of a sense of of how that because that mixes with standing stone and all manner of things yeah I think I started with feet because I was trying to think about so I start in a temple in Syria um in a place called Ayandara which was an Iron Age temple um and you could see up until 2018 you could see these huge enormous giant divine feet carved into the floor of the temple striding into the temple because temples uh, you know religion isn't what you believe in the ancient world religion is what you do and temples were places where you socialized with deities and the deity was literally understood to be present in the temple. And this, the, this, these giant footprints at this particular temple in Aindara represent that. The temple was bombed in 2018 in a Turkish air raid, um, which was devastating. I know you're meant to be more upset. I am ups more upset when people get bombed, obviously, but um, it, it was particularly upsetting uh, that this temple was destroyed because so much had already been destroyed in, in the war in Syria. Um, but it was important to start with the feet because it represents the idea of divine placement in the world. The gods were understood to, to manifest materially, even invisibly, but materially in these particular points in the landscape. That's what standing stones in the ancient Levant seem to have understood, you know, a stone is it literally stands up like a person it's given a social presence and these were very often identified with otherworldly powers and beings and deities and so yeah the idea that you find that the idea of god having his feet in the human world really clearly in the bible i mean god himself in talks about having the soles of his feet resting in jerusalem this is the place where his feet are 
Um, so that that temple in Ayandara is a really vivid material reflection of, of the same cultural idea that the gods really did walk into their temples and take up residence there. And so that's why feet are important. And they're, 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 they're the way, you know, they mark everything about what it is to be to be human because the feet were also very sensory organs in ways that we don't really understand so much today in the modern West. You know, we're so accustomed to using our feet to walk about with, but obviously they're in shoes and we don't use our feet in the same way as our, as ancient people did to, you know, they measured time with their feet as well as distance. They, they, you know, wove baskets with their feet. They use their feet for treading fruit, you know, for, for turning manure blocks, um, you know, all sorts of things. So they were much more sort of in touch with their feet, I think, in ways that we're not. And so to really understand, like, how were deities understood to be present in the human world? It was it was really much to, to understand them as to be present and placed by means of their feet literally being in, in their temples. Also, the dirt. You, you talk about the fact, you know, that still in religious traditions where someone, I can't remember who it was, who, who threw at George W. Bush's shoe because they're yeah. the, 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 the filth, the dirt that's built up. That's, that's a very, very interesting sense. And, and you also talk about when Pope Francis, was it 2013, when, when he, he bathed the feet of two women and there was all manner of kind of ramifications from that, weren't there? Yeah, there's a sense in which the feet like continue to hold these kind of play these very important social and cultural roles and traces of that do derive, I think, um, from a lot of biblical traditions and, and the cultural context of those traditions. And so the feet, because the idea that when this Iraqi journalist threw his, his shoes at George W. Bush at a press conference, I mean, he was using the, the idea of the power of of the shoe, which is a symbol, it's a symbol of power. Um, in the Bible, Yahweh, God, throws his shoe on Edom, and it looks to us like it's just him having a temper tantrum. So Edom is a place in what's now southern Jordan. But they had this, this sense very much that shoes were symbols of power. You trampled, you know, the gods trampled their enemies, their cosmic enemies, into submission and created the world in that way. And kings and pharaohs would talk about they will trample their enemies. So the idea of like kind of body abuse and corpse abuse by stamping and tramping on people. It's a way of marking ownership and power and occupation and territory. So like when, when the Iraqi journalist threw his, his shoes at George W. Bush, he's basically echoing something that's been going on for like, you know, thousands of years. The idea that shoes can function as these power objects and this idea that this dirty shoe can be used as a weapon against a much more powerful being but also the shoe embodies something of that journalist personhood um, there's a sense in which you know we're not just bound by our skin we're not just these kind of individuals in that sense but we can talk about something like extended personhood whereby if I throw my shoe at you that is a part of me hitting you um, so I might as well be stamping on you or kicking you um, and I like that idea and I like the idea that we kind of get these echoes of these very ancient cultural practices and traditions in the modern world today but also you can see why it would be relevant to how we describe a, a god being present because you need you need to be able to say oh yeah this is a thing from god and therefore it is still god because you can't see god yeah so you need to be able to be like yes yes that's definitely been sent by god and is therefore of god and god because you're never going to be like, and here's God, he's here. Yeah, you know? exactly. I think that's the thing as well. It's like, 
somebody said um somebody said to me well well surely it's it's all metaphor it's all metaphorical all this body language about god in the bible you know it's all metaphorical but but metaphors come from somewhere they they're not just kind of they index things they index much larger things and we use our own bodies in so many ways to to index you know if i've got my eye on you i haven't literally got my eye on you but you know exactly what it means it means that i'm doing yeah. looking and caring and observing and scrutinizing but but in the ancient world those those metaphors did something they were they were much bigger they were much stretchier they're much more elastic because the very fact is that we're dealing with imaginary beings right like i mean this, this is a god who is an imaginary being and so to be able to materialize to embody an imaginary being you have to use the senses you know that this your our own sensory capacities as humans gives us i think extraordinary extraordinarily um capacious imaginations for thinking about things that are not there or are no longer talking or no longer existing robin and i've talked in the past a bit about the dead and the way in which when people die yes they're, they're gone they're no longer here but we still have this capacity, even the most atheist or secular amongst us, we still have this capacity to have continuing social relationships with the dead. And we do that by means of various sensory experiences, whether it's not just the way that we deal with our dead by burying or cremating, but, but how we choose to remember them, different smells and tastes and foods and you know, going to a, a special place. All of that stuff is a way of sensorially engaging with the dead, even though they're not there see that it interests me in terms of that as that tangible sense is lost because i was wondering how much as you obviously some of the people who are infuriated or have been infuriated because they don't like their god to become too tangible to become too much amongst us and to have all these that you know what are seen as sometimes the embarrassing sides of, of, of human beings and i wondered how much that was connected as well because there's a great marketing coup isn't there where yah or yahweh goes why not just call me god which yeah. is a really good way of ruining it for the competition isn't it <laughs> then they just become some gods and you're god capital yeah. g and i wondered if those two things in any way moved in tandem this this removal of of a god who is like so many of the other mythical gods in terms of the way of being angry and sexual and and you know betraying and and vicious into i'm omnipotent and better than everyone and whether that how much that was connected with the kind of you know the reboot i think it's i think it's one point in a much longer journey of this kind of gradual shift towards monotheism of a sort so a monotheism whereby there is only one god and there are no others you don't find pure monotheism in the bible at all um it doesn't happen until much much later many centuries later but you get a shift towards it so really, it's kind of like pantheon reduction rather than monotheism. But yeah, so that deity kind of like takes on the roles and functions, not just of other gods and goddesses. Um, but yeah, when he basically says, look, I am I am ale, I am deity. Um, it is an extraordinary moment. And interestingly, the most common word that's used for God in the Hebrew Bible is Elohim, which is a plural. Um, so it literally means gods. And so it's almost like a way of, yeah, co-opting this idea of plurality and sort of condensing it all down into one single form but the other great the other really interesting thing you know you said like people don't like their god to be too tangible i think within christianity that's exactly what happens god does become you know the christian claim is that god does become incredibly tangible by becoming a human being 
and not just becoming human being, but suffering and dying and then resurrecting and rebooting and all that kind of stuff again. And also God becomes something you physically share by taking yeah. communion. Exactly. You eat bits of God, basically, um, which is like an extraordinary kind of claim. But it's a really important one because for two reasons. Firstly, if they didn't, if the ancestors, if you like, of the earliest Christians didn't already have a sense that God had a body, that would be almost impossible to come up with the idea that this God could become a human, a real human. You know, he was already human shaped, so here he is in human form. But the other thing about it is that Christianity needed to make the case, Christian theologians needed to make the case that of the exceptionalism of Jesus in some ways, that this is the only way in which you can encounter the body of God. This is the only body that he has. So it was in their interest, basically, to emphasize that there was no way that um, God could have had a body before this because that would make a mockery of the God who had been incarnate in the body of Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah, hmm. it does. What do you think was it in, in researching this book? And I realize it's a lot more than researching the book. That this is years of your of, of your work and, 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 and study long before probably the book was even an idea. But what do you feel was the thorniest issue in terms of those who wanted to translate Christianity into the version that we start to see i don't know when we start to see but the one that i think of as, as as being around the kind of reformation and around that 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 time what do you think was the the hardest thing to to work out how can we turn this tale into something that fits into the the ethics and the morality that we want to uh use i think you see some you see some of that quite early i mean one of the what i think the thorniest issue was trying to work out to what kind of a per what, what is who was jesus like was he a god was he an angel a lot of people thought he was basically an angel like gabriel um a lot of people thought he was like enoch who was this figure who's mentioned in genesis who's kind of like taken up and to walk in heaven with god and then becomes this kind of heavenly scribe and a mediator and pops up and in various people's kind of religious experiences some people thought that he was basically um a god in the guise of a human so a bit like some of those you know, like, so, so that made God a bit too polymorphous, you know, he was like a shapeshifter, which people didn't really like. So you get those debates really early on in the beginning, the first few centuries of Christianity, that's what's happening. But later on, I think one of the big problems becomes Jesus' sexuality. If he's human, well, how human is he? Um, so you get debates, I talk about a few in the book about, well, you know, did he poo? Like, did he actually, you know, did he piss and shit? Um, did he really, you know, did he have a children? Did he have a sexual relationship? You know, because all of these things were so associated with the base and the bodily, things like any kind of bodily excrement, excretion or um, ejaculation, all of those sorts of things were, particularly in, in Europe, you, you get the sense that somehow the base and the bodily um, are, are somehow of a lesser quality and status than the divine and the sublime. And so for Jesus as a proper human, you know, could he ejaculate? Did he ejaculate? Did he, did he excrete? You know, did he urinate? All of that kind of stuff was, I think, was really difficult. What kind of a human being is he? Is he sexual? Is he... Is that partly why they cut out all the books between the age of about 12 and about 25? Because <laughs> they, they were like, this is, too, this is too visceral a time. I mean, that's the thing. 
thing because we do have a lot of early Christian texts from like the second and third centuries into the fourth century that do talk about Jesus doing like bonkers stuff, which are all perfectly, perfectly reasonable early Christian traditions, you know, like killing a child when he's a child and then bringing that child back to life again. You know, he gets really angry with him and hits him and, and kills him and brings him back to life. Um, you know, things like, you know, he goes around punching his school teachers and stuff like that. So this is like really kind of loads of bonkers traditions about Jesus between those ages, you know, when he is a child and a, and a young man. But equally, you get other traditions where he's a complete asshole. You know, there's this one tradition where um, we, we've got reflections of it in the traditions in the Gospels known as the Transfiguration, where before his crucifixion, he goes up onto this mountain and he's praying with his disciples. Then all of a sudden disciples look at him and one and all of a sudden his head he's this bright dazzling cosmic giant and his like head reaches into the heavens and his feet are bright and white and they're on the floor so we get we get that we get the hints of those traditions in the gospels but then in the second and third centuries ce you get expansions on these traditions where jesus suddenly notices that the disciples have seen this kind of like metamorphosis and gets really pissed off with his disciples and then grabbing like disciple John by the hair and pulling him by his beard and saying you know don't look at me I told you not to look at me and John says oh you know my face you know this is really gonna hurt and he says well you know I'm gonna give you a lot more of a beating if you carry on like this I mean he's just a bit of a bastard but like so those traditions do they don't make it into the canon um into any of the Christian canons which on one hand is probably because some people did find them quite um difficult um, they found them it wasn't a cultural preference about what kind of a Jesus or a Christ do we really want to to represent so there's a lot of stuff that 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 doesn't make it into the Bible which is brilliantly interesting stuff I mean traditions about Mary's vagina are, are extraordinary she's got a magic magic vagina as well as a magic baby you know so when <laughs> it's, it's the Arabic infancy gospel is one of them and there's some other examples where when the baby Jesus is born um the midwife that's there at the birth um doesn't believe that mary's a virgin and so puts her hand inside mary's vagina and mary's vagina basically burns her arm off um, and then when jesus is born he heals it and restores the arm i mean these are all perfectly normal kinds of stories to tell of these miraculous divine beings um well also you into the bible I, I was thinking about how when I looked at jokes from the 16th century, they all seemed so violent and so brutal. And how, of course, and the idea that there wouldn't be mythology and folklore or, or traditions that were more visceral and violent and brutal from a time that was much more violent and brutal and visceral is really ridiculous too, to sort of think that what there'd just be this guy walking around very gently and that would appeal to everyone enough you know yeah and then that's the thing i mean it's partly because you've got the whole emphasis on the baby jesus the innocent baby jesus you know born without sin and this very childlike kind of vulnerability which is a really appealing part of the christian story it's one of the most powerful aspects of the whole story is that you know this innocent baby that we know is born to be killed um and yet at the same time, when you read the Gospels, that there's a lot of very violent, he says a lot of very violent stuff in there. I mean, there are some portrayals of Jesus in the Gospels where he is all about the kind of, you know, cursing people. And you're going to go, you know, the world is going to end. You know, what's the point in having children? You know, I'm going to curse your breasts and I'm going to curse your womb. And talking about cutting off body parts, you know, sort of saying it's better 
that you know you pluck out when he says it's better for you to pluck out your evil eye and to cut off the hand that that sins you know he's not being metaphorical there he's basically saying it's better to you know to to remove those parts of your body because they 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 will corrupt the rest of you i mean he's and all of that's it's in the bible anyway that's in the new testament so he he does kind of preach fire as as well as love in the gospels but we tend not to notice the fire yeah got such a sanitized view of as jesus as our best friend and savior who do you, in terms of popular culture versions of either jesus or god because when you were talking about that i was thinking of two in particular i was thinking of willem dafoe in Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation yeah. of Christ, which has the the scene I particularly remember that is where he raises Lazarus from the dead, and as Lazarus hugs him, he's kind of disgusted. He's yeah. kind of, oh my God, what have I done? And then the other version I was thinking of was Dennis Potter's Jesus in Son of Man, where you've got Colin Blakely as a a kind of a carouser and an eater, and he's a big guy, and he's he's not again. You know, we, we often think of a very delicate kind of person and, and as Josie was saying you're just wandering through very calm who's that calm guy let's follow him you know yeah. that's, uh, so do you have favorite versions in terms of those that have made it to pop culture my very favorite it's not so much pop culture I guess but my very favorite is Nikos Kazantzakis so the author of the book The Last Temptation on which the the Defoe Jesus is based I mean the film's pretty bad in a lot of ways when it comes to representing the book um but what Kazantzakis does in that book is so extraordinary because I think he probably understands better than most theologians that I read when I was an undergraduate um, what this world was like and the challenges of that world that supposedly Jesus was in. Um, and it is a, a Jesus who is very much, you know, he, he suffers from frightening visions and nightmares and seems to be having seizures and fits of some sort, but has sexual desire and he is disgusted. And um, you get a little bit of that in the Gospels where it says that he he raises Lazarus from his tomb. I mean, geez, poor Lazarus, right? He's the dude that actually does resurrect first. Do you know what I mean? But Jesus gets all the attention afterwards. But like when he resurrects him, like the Gospel writers say the stench coming out, you know, he's going to stink. And Kazan Sykes is great at catching that, the, at the repulsion and the disgust that, that Jesus has. And he's, he's a very... This is a deliberately very human Jesus, but importantly human in ways that I think the doctrine and traditions of the Christian church have just stripped away from him, you know, like I'd, I'd be much more kind of, I'd lean much more towards Jesus if he was allowed to be a bit more human. But the only way he's allowed to be human is in the kind of like softly, softly way and the kind of like, oh, you know, he suffered and died way, which yes, is important into the Christian story, but I'd like, I'd like someone that's a little less two-dimensional, I guess. You do have you have some beautiful one. You you were talking before about some of the the, the senses where the Bible shit gods are repeatedly described as man made abominations. I mean that is you know there's 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 so again no one shit gods as 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 a, as a term. All of this stuff is and and the way that you also talk about things like genitalia as well. And there's there's I, I thought this was where you said by covering our genitals we render them culturally visible. Yeah. Again, all of these things, which are probably the most terrifying things of being human, which is, you know, controlling your genitals, controlling your bowels, all of these things which are not necessarily in the well, aren't in the grasp of, of your consciousness. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. That's what makes bodies so interesting, both human bodies and divine bodies, is that it's the sense. 
it's about the inside and outsideness of bodies and you know what what and those liminal spaces between our legs um and our butt cheeks and you know the liminal spaces that are in our heads our mouths and nostrils you know, we've, we've got all sorts of all cultures have various sort of anxieties and tics that occur around those bodily spaces and it's exactly the same for divine bodies in the ancient world um and and i do think that there's something again about the sensory realities of being human that have shaped our imaginations about what it is to be divine i, I see that quite quite clearly that you can't divorce our own bodily experiences um and from the ways in which they have triggered our yeah our, the way that we imagine otherworldly beings because they're either completely different from us or they're similar enough to us to be like jesus kind of familiar but not too familiar so it's playing with that liminality of um of yeah insides and outsides and life and death and reality and fantasy Yeah, exactly. And I like that as well. Like that correspondence. Like people say, oh, when the Bible says, oh, and God made man in his own image. Oh, that just means a moral image. What's a moral image? Like, do you know what I mean? That's, there's nothing said about that in Genesis. But it literally means he made humans in God shape. They were God shaped creatures, just as humans made their gods as human shaped creatures. It's the same image of like crafting from clay that you find when, gen you know, when God like makes Adam in Genesis. Like, so too, that's exactly what humans were doing at the same time when they crafted images of their gods. So like that human god correspondence of bodily shape and, and visual appearance, um, that, that is incredibly intimate. Like even for this ancient theology, it's a really intimate way of presenting the relationship and the likeness between humans and gods. Um, and that's what a lot of the Psalms talk about. That's why, you know, humans a given dominion over the earth because we've got to keep all the other humans and all the other creatures in check because we are the most godlike of all the creatures in the cosmos which is obviously well you think so but then you know it's led to horrendous bloody you know environmental damage and kind of the, the you know the raising of the world and but yeah it's, it's a visual correspondence that's that's how it was understood a bodily correspondence and that's exactly obviously what's being then rehearsed in the story of Jesus being this kind of human who is God as well. When when you were growing up fascinated by this, what was what was the nearest equivalent to your book, God and Anatomy? What were the books that were I mean, were the things out there that were introducing you to this entirely because it seems that from the way you describe it as well you as you studied more you were more like kind of well, well I'm disappointed that so yeah. much has been kept from me so I wondered were, were there any scholars who uh you know were, were leading you in some ways towards the direction you've taken I think when I was really little it was obviously um the Greek gods and goddesses I spent a lot of time reading myths those sorts of myths um which made complete sense to me um and then obviously it was also children's Bibles, weirdly. I was, you know, when I, I do remember so vividly looking at these children's Bibles and you do get pictures, you do get, you know, cause they're very visual. You do get pictures of like a divine hand coming down from the clouds and all that kind of stuff. And that's what I wanted to see. I had it in my Greek and, and Roman gods and goddesses books. And I had it in my illustrated children's Bible, but I was really disappointed when I got to university. I wanted to study theology because I wanted this stuff. I wanted to know, well, how come 
its claims that this god is is different somehow from the from the other gods of Egypt and Mesopotamia and Rome and Greece. Um, but no one ever talked about it. And so this is the book that I wanted to read when I was at uni. That's why I went to uni, because I wanted to know, OK, who is this guy? And, you know, who is this deity? And how do we get to this point? And no one really talked about it at all. That is the perfect answer, which is, is uh, Francesca, are there any other books that used to exist that do what your book does? <laughs> no, none <laughs> at all. This is the only book like this. It is competition free, this marketplace. But it must feel wonderful to have to have filled, you know, made the thing exist that you needed. It must feel amazing to know that, like, the next you will be able to read your book and be like, right, thank you, <laughs> you know. Oh, God, I don't know. I hope it feels amazing soon. At the minute, it just feels very, very stressful, to be honest. <laughs> like, I mean, because it's weird, because like, I've written academic books, obviously, but those are books that they get published and it's really exciting, but they only, you know, they're only ever read by about 10 people and they cost about 60 quid. And so, you know, it's kind of, that's it, that's done, that's great. But this is writing a book, and I didn't expect it to be as much of a brick either, but like writing a book like this, when anyone can read it and a lot of people are reading it at the minute and enjoying it, that's quite scary because it's almost like, I feel very exposed, I suppose, because I realise just how much of me is in that book, like my interests and how I see things. And, you know, there'll be academic colleagues that will disagree with me on certain points and on certain translations or interpretations. Of course there are. That's that's our job. That's what we do is to basically disagree with each other most of the time. But, um, but yeah, it feels, because it's the thing that I've been most interested in really since I was a kid, um, to having written it is amazing. But yeah, I do feel quite exposed in a funny sort of way. I've rendered myself culturally visible, um, pop culturally visible. And yeah, it's quite weird. But it is, we, we should say as well, because you mentioned, you know, the people who got all cross listening on Radio 4, but also you had an incredible review in the Sunday Times. You know, you're doing live events, which are being, you know, the, the reactions that people are getting. And it is, it's, it's very approachable. It's not, and it's not in any way an academic tome, even though obviously you can check the footnotes. But anyone who is scared about what a brick it is, I do promise the last hundred pages you don't necessarily have to deal with because they're all footnotes and they're all, <laughs> that, that, that's what I'm always hoping. Whenever I pick up an academic book and I go, oh, bloody hell, have I got to read this in two days? Oh, thank heavens, half of it, just says Ibid, see this, see that. Also, come on. So many people read Harry Potter, you know? Come on. Yeah. Read something else that is big and thorough and epic. Come on. Yeah, I like that. Can I put that on the back cover for the paperback? Big and thorough yeah. and epic. Yeah. God's genitals and this book. <laughs> What was it? But what was the hardest chapter to write? Was that was the one where you thought? Because I, I know that obviously you want as many people as possible to read this and not to be. It's one of those difficult things, isn't it? Is is that though you want to give a vivid and and real illustration of the truth of this all? I presume you're also thinking about well, oh, this one. If I put you know if I put that there, is that going to be something which is going to mean that someone who would actually thoroughly enjoy going on this adventure will be turned off too early? Did you have any yeah. of those kind of battles? Yeah, the first chapter, the introduction, that was the hardest one to write because because you're writing you don't want to bore the pants off people before they've even started the book proper but you have to kind of lay out this kind of landscape you know important thing like what is the bible kind of thing you know who wrote these texts and where do they come from and you have to cover a huge amount of ground in a relatively short space of time plus deal with all the bloody 
you know, the assumptions that, that we naturally bring as Westerners, we naturally bring to both texts and these particular religious traditions. Um, that was really hard and I really struggled with writing it and I, I hated it and I, I still don't particularly like that first chapter at all. I wish it wasn't there, but it has to be there because you have to give someone, someone a place to start. So that first chapter, dissecting the divine, is kind of like saying, okay, so this is who we think God is, but actually he's not. And in the Bible, actually, that's not what you think it is either. And actually, this isn't what you think it is either. And, and, and that's really hard. It was like when I did TV, like the thing I wanted most in the world was to have footnotes at the bottom of the screen. Like, you know, qualifying this and nuancing that and see further so-and-so. And equally in this book, like it has got footnotes, but, but it's end notes, but hardly, you know, nothing compared to what I would do in an academic book. And that's really hard as well, because you want to be able to say, you know, there's a really interesting discussion of this verb in this particular chapter on pages, blah, 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 and you want to go into that and you can't. And so you do kind of feel like you're leaving yourself, you're kind of, you're being a bit more um, adventurous, I suppose, because you haven't got, I haven't got all my normal safety nets around me that I would do in an academic publication to kind of say, this is exactly why I'm saying this. And, and this is why this, I'm, I'm being condensing this huge academic debate into this one simple paragraph. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Francesca. And uh, did you have you back, Josie, as well? Oh, wow, well, I'm barely back. I feel like I'm sort of a bit... Um, so I'm so sorry. I'm not very intellectual. Don't be sorry. At the and, moment, not... and my focus is, is terrible. But it's still with all so that. lovely to talk rubbish. to you. you and so exciting great. to hear about a book that's so lively about things that people are often too frightened to connect to life you know oh thanks so. Josie like honestly I'm just chuffed that anyone's reading it and that you both want to talk about it so thank you so oh much it's not a book you can <laughs> read in the bath by the way just to warn everyone it's one of those ones where you're slowly again like Alan Moore's Jerusalem you'll find yourself slowly slipping under the sun so you have to find it in these last few the dying embers of autumn you can still sit in your garden and uh, and read this and look up to the sky and wonder what God's genitals are doing now um, <laughs> thank you so much Francesca thank you very much to our producer Trent Burton as I said if you can support us via patreon patreon.com slash book shambles is where to go uh bye 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 thanks very much for listening thanks very much to our patreon supporters patreon.com slash book shambles to support the show get extended episodes etc apologies if you can hear some sirens in the background during this or the intro um i've tried to record this about 19 times and every time a different emergency vehicle has gone past and i've given up waiting like and review five stars on apple podcasts or itunes that really helps us out back next week with robin's book launch special with tim minchin until then have a great week and we'll see you soon bye this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network josie robin's book shambles was produced by trent burton of trunkman productions